Welcome to the Bike Talk with Dave podcast. I'm your host, Dave Mabel. Thanks tons for tuning in today. If you follow the show, and I hope you do, in fact, if you don't yet subscribe, then go ahead and click that little button right now. That'd be awesome. And if you want to throw in a rating and a review, that'd be sweet too. Anyway, if you follow the show, you probably know that I like talking to race directors and promoters about their race or event. We've had some awesome events on from Gravel Worlds, Core 4, the Arkansas High Country Race, Rattlesnake Gravel Grind, Gravel Locos, Driftless 100, Schwamigan, even Ragbri. I like to introduce you to events that are a bit unique or new or even celebrating their 50th year. Today's no different. Welcome to the Belgian Waffle Ride. Michael Marks, who could compete for the world's most interesting man, began the event more than a decade ago, and it's grown into the biggest bike race series in the country, rivaling even the Tour de France. Okay, maybe not that big, but it's definitely big and it has gone viral. I wanted to learn about the story of the race and get to know the guy behind it. Plus, Shelby Stanger told me I should have him on because he's, well, the world's most interesting man. So thanks for the referral, Shelby. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to Michael Marks and the Belgian Waffle Ride. Michael Marks, welcome to Bike Talk with Dave. I'm thrilled to have you on, uh, talk about the Belgian Waffle Ride and so much more. Beauty, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Oh, so much fun. I feel like we have a lot in common. Um, I was perusing, do we call it stalking if we're like doing research or <laughs> is it research? <laughs> I was perusing your... Oh. <laughs> we'll we'll like call it research. Out, if you did enough digging and found out that my mom uh, was from Des Moines, which is a connection for us, then I'd be a little freaked out. Oh, I did not know that. That's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, you and I are, I feel like, close to the same age. So, uh, like, tell me your mom. Where was she from? Um, she's from Kansas, then moved to Des Moines. Lived there f until um, she was 17, and then oh. moved west to California, where she ultimately met my father on a blind date. And... Um, They've been together ever since, so I don't know. Oh, that's awesome. That's Sixty some odd years together. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. Uh, so we probably didn't cross paths in Des Moines. I, I don't think so. No. Uh, is that where the next Belgian waffle ride is going to be? Uh, we've considered that, but uh, there are other places uh, in line before it. All right. Well, we'll do our best to move up the list. It'd be fun to uh, <laughs> share our wide variety of surface types with you yes um but anyway in my in my digging research stalking uh i ran into your top you went beyond top 10 top 20 albums of all time uh you're a bit of a musician and uh dude you like some good stuff um i, I feel like you and i would have a lot in common if we hung out together, you two, Bowie, a uh, little Dave Matthews band in there. Like, I loved it. I loved your freaking top 10, top 20. Steely Dan. Steely Dan. Steely Dan. Yeah. Yep. 
um, did I say Frampton, REM, uh, Bo, like great music. Wow. Amazing. You uh, found that. Well, I mean, it's, you just hit photos on Facebook and all, all of your albums pop up. Uh, I love how you dove into kind of why you chose them. Like you, you should just print those and put them in a book. And it's like, uh, Michael Marx's top 10 albums dissected or something. Um, <laughs> And you play drums. What do you like to play? Like, what's your favorite style of music to play? You know, as I've gotten older, I've matriculated towards more jazzy stuff, but I would say funky jazz. But, um, you know, it's just maybe a variety of time signatures and um, approaches to the composition of the music. But, you know, growing up, because we're about the same age. So I grew up, you know, playing classic rock and roll. That's how I learned. And then, you know, you learn some punk and then you learn metal. And I really wanted to be open to it all. So I've played in hip hop bands, funky jazz bands, alternative rock bands, um, ska bands, like every kind of band, because I enjoyed the challenge and I'd get hired to play with these bands and then do my best to not let them down. So I like it all. But like if I get my band together, which has like, there's like all these semi-famous or famous musicians and then there's me on the drums (laughs) and we will play funky jazz. We won't even rehearse, but we will play stuff that um, everyone's familiar with or we'll like literally backstage run through the horn parts or the sections of a song and then play them. So uh, I really enjoy that stuff because it's unstructured and it's like this conversation that happens like you and I are having, you have no idea where it's going. You know that the topic is going to be cycling, but it could, it could transcend that quite easily. Same thing with those, that type of music genre. I feel like that's, you just described what the belgian waffle ride is like it's not (laughs) one thing it's so many things all mashed together and a little bit of improv here and there and a little bit of wandering through the woods and a little bit of wandering through the grass and some pavement and everything in between so that's uh, it's kind of interesting very true uh kind of describes you you i know well, the reason you're here is because of Shelby Stanger. And, yeah. uh, Isn't uh, she great? I just had her on. She's awesome. Um, so nice. Like the word kindness is the one word I would use to describe her. She just seems kind and uh, thoughtful. So, But y- your name came up as her relationship to cycling. And... I warned her. I was like, you might be getting an invitation to ride in the Belgian waffle ride. So you better uh, reach out and see if you can get Shelby to uh, jump in the, the the little wafer. Is it the wafer, the short one? The wanna, then the wafer, then the waffle. Wanna. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the wanna is the, the 35-ish miles. Um, yeah. Wafer like might be created- a little long to start out. But it we, yeah. The Wana is sort of the on-ramp to the wafer, just as the wafer was created to be the on-ramp to the waffle. Yeah, that's uh, a good way to do it. It gives everybody a chance to 
to, to try it out. Yeah. So let me ask you this. How would you describe the Belgian waffle ride? Um, it's a Belgian-inspired party that involves the consumption of waffles, uh, a very long, hard day on the bike, followed by more waffles and Belgian ale. Um, in reality, it was created to be to emulate the spring classics that you typically find in and around Belgium. Very long, hard days that the most exciting thing are the cobblestone sectors. And a lot of those races, Paris-Roubaix being probably the archetypical one, you know, has 30, 35, 38 sectors. So what, what we do is we have lots of road, but lots of single track and double track and water crossings. And so it's this amalgamation of all the different types of terrain you could possibly take a road bike with wider tires through and survive. Uh, ultimately, too, there was always a bit of cyclocross because at the time I created the BWR, I had a I had a pro card to race cyclocross and I loved it. But I thought, why does it have to be an hour? Why can't it be seven hours? So all of those things together, Belgian stuff, right? Bel the Belgians own cyclocross. They sort of own the spring classics. They definitely own Belgian waffles and they definitely own Belgian ale. These are all things that I love. My family having a Belgian heritage. I grew up eating waffles and watching bike races with my father. And he got me my first race bike when I was 12 which is the same year I ran my first marathon, but that's not saying much because my brothers did it when they were eight and nine and all six of us were marathoners. And, marathon? Yeah, like running. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I know, yeah, right? right? You ran yeah. a marathon at 12 and they ran when they were, what'd you say, eight? Eight and nine, yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I mean, we, we growing up, we played all the traditional sports, but, you know, my parents were into running and cycling, so we would go to races all the time. We surfed a lot and skateboarded a lot, too. And in the summers, like now when it's warm, we would paddle our longboard surfboards 10, 15, even 20 miles with our fishing poles, go out in the middle of the ocean and fish. So there was a waterman aspect to it. There was endurance sports aspect to it. I was just lucky enough to grow up in an era, you know, the, the 70s, if you will, where the world was wide open and we didn't worry about things like helmets and seat belts and crazy things. Yeah. And we lived this incredible life because our, our parents afforded us the ability to do whatever we wanted and encouraged it. So that's what we did. My dad got me up at 4.15 every morning to run or ride the bike. Um, sometimes I'd go surf, but from sixth grade on, I was getting up at 4.15 to spend time with my father. That's pretty awesome. And your father, your name is, last name is Marks, but it's related to Merckx, as in Eddie yeah. Merckx. Uh, are you actually related to Eddie Merckx? Yeah, it's funny. My my aunt, who was the first uh, marketing person at Nike, it's my dad's sister, she did the whole family tree and found that relation out and 
I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Because I knew that um, my relatives, the two brothers came over and one brother got to keep the Merrick's name, the other kept the Mark's name, but it's the same family, the same clan. You know, you still have the same reunions, but like, hey, you, you got a funny last name in there, a funny vowel. But yeah, so we're a part of the Merrick's clan and um, from sort of the middle of Flanders near Beveren, which is just south of like Antwerp, um, kind of right in the heart of it all. And so, I don't know, we're just, my dad was always very proud of that heritage. And so it seeped into our psyche and the things that we did. Uh, that's awesome. So you got your first race bike at 12, did your first marathon at 12. Uh, did you grow up racing bikes? Was it all road and cross? Um, I spent a lot of time running and then, and I also was a swimmer. So the bike became the triathlon, right? So, uh, all of those things mixed together. And while I did race my bike actively, the triathlon thing seemed to make most sense and, by uh, graduating from college, I made the U.S. national team and got to go and race in the world championships in France. Then won the world amateur championships uh, as a duathlete. Uh, then started racing pro, won a few races, got hit by a car, had a year and a half of rehab. That changed things for a while. So yeah, lots of uh, lots of tumult in there, but bike racing, running, swimming, all of those things. I even played college soccer. So there was a lot going on. And occasionally I studied too, but the, I was playing music mostly. So it was a jumbled up um, mixed bag of avocations that um, I got to do. And I feel like I was very lucky that my parents afforded me that. And I got a good education out of it too. It all makes sense your life is a is a jazz <laughs> Im, jazz improv yeah i love it that's pretty cool that's boy that's wide variety of stuff um like snow sports did you ever go up in the mountains yeah i mean we skied as as kids they teach you to ski in junior high and then you you take that through high school i did the same with my kids on snowboards and my son became a snowboard instructor and they love it. But um, yeah, I think that's a natural part of where we live because we can drive up the mountain. We can surf in the morning, drive up the mountain, ski or snowboard into the evening and um, make a full day of it. That's awesome. What Shelby told me to ask you about Prefontaine. Oh, yeah. I mentioned my aunt who worked at Nike. Um she was Prefontaine's girlfriend, my Aunt Mary. Um, so when Pre would race in L.A., like if he came to race at UCLA or back then they had Times Indoor and Sunkissed Indoor Meets, uh, he would stay with us. Also, like I remember him staying with us and my dad taking him down to the track with one of those stopwatches to literally do intervals on the track that I would eventually go and try and run my best times on. Uh, and I was there on the infield sprinting and doing the long jump and, you know, yelling at uncle Steve and 
that was, you know, sort of fantastic. And then I'd go and watch Uncle Steve and he would win these races and it was so exciting. And of course, I watched his devastating fourth place uh, in the Olympics. Um, and also he kept a room with my grandmother in the Portland area. So I literally stayed in the same room with Steve when I would go and visit. Um, and finally, after Steve passed, my aunt gave me a very special pair of Steve's shoes that the heel had been cut out and there was a makeshift waffle heel on it. Um, I still have those shoes and I'm preserving them and they'll go, they'll go to a good charity or be auctioned off for a good charity at some point because they're worth quite a lot. Um, so yeah, Prefontaine had his imprint on me and you can imagine I just wanted to run fast as a kid and I trained a lot. I would overtrain in high school. I'd like to do hundred mile weeks and, oh and be riding the bike too. Um, I just thought you ran hard all the time. Cause that's what Steve said. You just, you know, it's, uh, it's the honor of running. So you give it your all. I would do that every day. And my dad used to admonish me and say, son, let's just go slow and easy. And he said that every day. And I never understood what he meant until I was, you know, severely overtrained and had chronic fatigue. I reminded him that I, I had dinner with him this weekend and I reminded him of that, those frequent admonitions. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, I knew I was right, but <laughs> you didn't always <laughs> want to listen to me, son. I mean, do we ever? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I completely get that. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Um, I mean, was that uh, part of the inspiration for the waffle ride is those that waffle in the heel of the shoe there. <laughs> I'm no, reaching but, there, aren't I? Yeah, but the, uh, you know, just the proximity to Steve and having him as a hero um, and just being in his presence, you know, there was something sort of electrifying about that. And I wanted to be like that. So I ran hard from a young age. Yeah, I believe it. I dare you to keep up. I dare you to stay yeah. with me. Yeah. That's, that's pretty darn cool. Well, this, this is uh bike talk. Although, I mean, with Shelby, it was book talk, but that's Shelby. She gets special treatment. Yeah. Um, uh, and I want to talk about Belgian waffle ride. Uh, 10 years, 12, 12 years. So 13, 11. Okay. Um, why, why did California need that ride? Um, I, I wanted California to need that ride. Basically, I had been hired to turn around an eyewear company called Spy Optic. And um, there were two things. I, I mean, the five CEOs before me had collectively lost $55 million. So it was Ooh. in a bad spot. And I'm certain the board thought that I would just be their scapegoat and it, the you know they'd file bankruptcy. But the brand had really good bones. So I figured I'm gonna just talk to the founders who I knew and get back to what the original intent of the brand was and then rebuild or resuscitate the brand. So the first year was about resuscitation. Basically it's like the money you spend on an ambulance to go to the hospital to, to be kept alive. Um, and then it was about 
building the brand. And one thing you had to do is like, well, what's your story in terms of uh, um, product? And what's your story in terms of what does the brand stand for? So the first thing I did is, or the I did these contemporaneously. One is create uh, a lens technology that had never been created. And originally I wanted to create a lens technology that, that relaxed your eyes, which meant you were conserving energy and reducing stress. And I worked with a scientist who was like, well, I've got you even better. No one's ever done this, but we, we want to attempt to create a lens transmission curve that blocks out all the bad light. So that's shortwave blue light, but allows in the maximum amount of longwave blue light, which is the stuff that you know enters your brain through your eyes and causes serotonin to be released. So that whole idea became the happy lens. And we went to Carl Zeiss first, the foremost purveyor of lens technology, who said, we think you're stupid. Uh, and went to several others that laughed at us. And finally, one factory said, we think we can do it. And then another one did. So we had two factories that could achieve this. And by the way, this became the first ever patented therapeutic lens technology and still is to this day. So the happy lens was the byproduct of needing to have a story. And then the whole brand was this irreverent take on what happiness is. So you can imagine how easy that would be to market, right? Someone calls on the phone, hey, thanks for calling Spy, how can I make you happy? You get the sunglasses and inside, there's little messages, little Easter eggs that make you happy. And ultimately the lens technology, when you put the lens on, it was sort of like the Pepsi taste test challenge. You put the lens on and you go, wow. And what that lens did is it, disrupted the entire sunglass arena because everyone was like, how did they do this? And so Oakley and Smith and everyone tried to come up with their versions of the happy lens. So contemporaneous to that, I wanted to create an event, this experiential marketing that was similar in its irreverence. It, it had its own type of happiness, which is you're doing something crazy, adventurous, but it's a party. You're going to eat waffles. You're going to kill yourself on the bike doing stuff you never imagined you could do. Then you're going to come back and get drunk on Belgian ale and eat more waffles or whatever food we have on hand. Um, frites and frites and, and Belgian ale. And that became like this mutually reinforcing exercise for the brand. Meaning once people got wind of it, it grew and grew and grew, and it became a profit center for the brand. And we take that money and stick it back into marketing the brand and the irreverence of the brand. And it was sort of an exercise that I wanted to do to teach the company, hey, this is how you transform an organization. This is how you emote your brand personality and sensibilities. And this is how you execute on creating something beyond a product line. You create a brand that people feel and love and want to be a part of. So BWR, I created as a brand. And after three years, my uh, contract with Spy was up, but they extended it two more years. It's like, okay, we built the BWR more. And then I left and I took the BWR with me. And then that became 
a hobby or an avocation where that brand I've been nurturing, you know, ever since, which was like seven or eight years ago. Why did it work? Well, like, like most things, um, there's a white space that you unfurl your flag in. And back then there was <clears throat> plenty of road racing, but road racing started to go away. It was too hard to get permits. So here in Southern California, the road races disappeared. And what you were left with was criterium racing in a parking lot. There'd be crashes and it was boring and it was kind of silly. And at the same time, cyclocross was taking off. So here in SoCal, you could do a, a cross race at that time. You could do the 45 pluses because I would race the pro race and the 45 plus race. There would be 120 men in the 45 plus cross race. So that had captured people's imaginations. So um, with that sort of rising tide in terms of people moving away from road racing for various reasons, adopting cyclocross, I thought, hmm, if they like this hour long thing, I bet you they're going to like a six or seven hour thing. And um, there was nothing like it. You could do a Grand Fondo, ride 100 miles, which everyone has done. But no one had on offer this type of 140 mile race on crazy terrain that was just the middle part of a party. What, what are the ingredients of a typical of the first core? I want to start with its beginnings and then I want to look to where you've expanded um, that first course. Like what were the key ingredients? To that course that was the easiest of them all and it was an invite only event so i curated the start list and just invited um people that i knew that would love it or national champions or olympians or basically denizens of the cycling community hmm. and i said hey look we're going to do this it's going to be the most fun supported thing you've ever done you don't have to pay a dime but afterwards if you like it this crazy thing, share it with the world. So that race was far less diabolical. It had, it had gravel stuff in it. Um, and there were sectors, but it wasn't nearly what it's become. And because back then there wasn't anything like a gravel bike, you could maybe right. get 28s on your road bike. Um, so, or you could race a cross bike and, you know, have 33s on there. And so that's what people did. But then each year, gravel started becoming a thing and they invented gravel bikes. And so our courses have matriculated towards more and more difficult terrain, more single track stuff. So the combination of events or the, the list of ingredients that we could put into our race expanded dramatically. And every year we still challenge the conventions of what that ingredients list is based on what kind of bikes and tires people have. Do you enjoy weaving together a course? I do. Although sometimes, you know, I could submit as many as 20 courses to the County in one year before they'd actually agree on one of them. So it's a lot of, a lot of work. A lot of uh, back and forth, like, yeah, you can do that, but you can't do that. Can't no, we're here. not going to let you through there. 
Yeah. Uh, no, you can't uh, have that road. Yeah. And some of it's private property. So you have to get permission and then insure those people. Um, there's could be six or seven municipalities, three or four or five different parks. Um, so the list of permits that you have to get. And then ultimately Caltrans and, you know, uh, police, all of those things have to be addressed. And then finally, the county will give you a permit, typically, which they provide one or two days before the event. So you're always on pins and needles wondering if you're going to get it permitted or not. The worst. Uh, sounds like putting on a road race might be easy <laughs> compared oh, totally. to this. Or, no. A criterium in a parking lot. A criterium in a parking lot would be easy. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right about that. Um, so who were some of the first names that showed up? Who were some of the cur- first characters of the event? Well, people that really supported it. Like I look at Neil Shirley, if you know Neil. Mm-hmm. Neil won Gravel Worlds back then. He won the BWR several times and was very supportive of it and the idea of gravel racing. So I, I attribute much of our early success. The foundation of success was by way of his largesse. Hmm. So Neil was great. Uh, Thurlow Rogers, if you know, Oh, sure. Thurlow did it and then swore he'd never do it again. Um, he actually got second to Neil one year. Um, and then you, you know, like just, People that were national and state champions, cross racers, um, national champion cross racers, that just a whole bunch of really cool people that gave it a vibe. And and then they told two people and so on and so forth. So the thing grew fairly rapidly. Each year it would sort of double in size. How many were in that first race? 136 invites, 118 finished. Oh, wow. Uh, ben Burdan, was he ever on the starting line? Yeah, Ben Ben did it a couple times. Um, uh, his girlfriend, too, um, Nicole at the time, she was a pro racer. Mm-hmm. She did it as well. Uh, Jonathan Page, if you remember him. Yep, he was a great dude. Uh, love him, too. Uh, uh, Ryan Trebone, another... Mm. national champion he did it several times cameron Wirth, mm-hmm. if you know cameron um he races on ineos but he's also a professional triathlete and a former uh, uh, olympian rower from australia but currently he rides for ineos and he does ironman triathlons he won it one year um so just like you know these colorful characters that come out and take it on and and then tell everyone how rad it is. That's awesome. That's a great marketing plan. I'm going to invite you. You don't have to pay a dime. Just tell two people. Yep. That's awesome. When did you expand from one location to two? Um, I think the first year that we had an additional event was 20 in, in Utah in Cedar city, 2020. Um, and then it sort of proliferated from there pretty quickly, um, where we added one or two or three. So now we're at seven for this year. International as well. Yeah, because the last one's in, in November in Mexico. That one's going to be good. And then we, you know, just in May, we 
we did uh, one in BC in Canada on Vancouver Island, which was beautiful. Uh, does that add a whole level of headache to go across the borders? For sure, Canada is is very challenging in terms of what you can bring through and the whole customs charade that you have to go through to get stuff. It 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 was a learning experience for sure. How do you decide where, where to go? Um, there was there was an avid waffle fan who's from there, Allison Keppel, who kept on me for years like we have to do it we have to do it and finally we said okay we're going to do it and then we worked diligently with her to get the permitting done to do the course to like you know make all of this happen and try and replicate that ingredients list uh in the Cowichan Valley on Vancouver Island and that's what we did and the course was amazing because can... of Alex. oh uh yeah. local knowledge of local totally. terrain definitely so helps she, out. She knew exactly what I liked about our San Diego and Utah events. And she made it happen in, in Canada as a result of being a student of that ingredients list. Do you have somebody local in each area? Is that how you kind of end up somewhere like Arizona or? Yeah. Uh, um, in, in North Carolina, we have Matthew Boucher, if you remember. Oh, sure. He uh, went to school he, in Iowa. Yep. Yep. He was a cross country runner. So we had yep. that in common. I sponsored him when I was at Spy and he rode for our team while he was on Lance's Radio Shack team. Um, he is our boots on the ground in North Carolina in the Asheville area. Um, Cedar City in Utah is close enough to us. So we just manage that. But um, in each location, we have a writer that we trust to be our proxy to help us get things done. Very cool. Where's it headed? Well, I guess internationally, right? Like if the Europe, I think is um, the next logical location, although South America might happen before that. Um, I think Latin America still has some room as well. And I hmm. think we could probably do several events in Canada. Um, I've had inquiries from Australia. Uh, I mean, on top of the ones like Pennsylvania and Texas and Montana, Oregon, um, internationally, there's been interest from, you know, all the best European locations. Plus, I mentioned Australia um, and other locations globally or internationally that could make sense. And the combination is, is it a great destination that offers that ingredients list that we've been talking about? Um, is there a cycling community there that would support it? And is it like, you know, a destination that people are going to want to go to? Hey, I'm going to Girona to race my bike. You know, sort of those three things have to be ticked off the list in order for us to consider going there. Well, you know, after you say that, I have to say Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah. But Lawrence is the best course that we offer of all of them because Lawrence is the only place in Kansas. And by the way, my grandfather was from there and I learned to drive a car there and to ride my bike in gravel there. But 
there it's hilly. It's the mm -hmm. only part of Kansas that's hilly. And there's single track and gravel roads and actually some paved roads and all sorts of the things that we, you know, are the most important ingredients for us. So that totally made sense. Plus there's a, a, a nice community there that's anchored by Sunflower Outdoor and Bike Shop that um, we work with there. Okay, I'll give you all that. All I'm, right. an I, I'm an Iowa State fan, so anything in Lawrence is a hard pill yeah. for me to swallow. Yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, we do appreciate that there's one in our neighborhood uh, for sure. Uh, did you ever envision when you when your contract ran out, they extended it two years with Spy, like, gosh, I'm going to run an international bike event company from here on out. Was that ever a vision of yours? It, it was uh, the idea was to always nurture this thing as a hobby or an avocation. So when I left Spy, I started working with other brands. And so I would, on the side, be nurturing this BWR brand. But, you know, I worked at Billabong. I worked at uh, Nixon Watches, where I ran the global Adidas watch business. Um, so I was always doing these other jobs and then just sort of managing at night to keep the, the fire alive uh, for BWR. But originally when I left, I thought I started Monuments of Cycling to put on other events. So I put on Peter Sagan's Grand Ooh. Fondo here and numerous other events. But at the time we were thinking, okay, let's do the Italian sausage ride and the Spanish paella ride and the German Schnitzel ride and, you know, make each one sort of unique to that culture. Uh, but then it made sense, and and I started to hark back on my experience younger, my younger experience, where I worked on the Ironman for three years. Um, after I got hit by a car um, on on the bike, uh, I went to go work for a company that ended up doing um, all the work on the Hawaiian Ironman that Gatorade became the title sponsor of. So literally, I worked for Gatorade and was their executive director on the Ironman stuff. And I learned quite a bit. I mean, I learned the whole scam of like taking people's money and holding on to it and uh, deriving income from that money and then only giving them back part of it. But um, I thought, hmm, BWR is a brand. I always wanted it to be. So why not just replicate that and don't come up with these other brands? So we tabled all the Italian sausage ride type events and just nurtured the BWR. Well, it seems to have worked. Yeah, I think so. I, Every it, year is a new challenge. Yeah, I'm sure. How long do you think, like gravel's a thing now for sure. How long are we gonna ride this gravel wave? Yeah, I think what's gonna happen is I think a lot of people are gonna discover mountain biking. Mm. Um, but I also think there's sort of something quite mutually reinforcing in the current cycling zeitgeist. And what I mean by that is the last few years, Nika has captured the imaginations of high school kids. So a lot of them aren't running cross country, they're racing their mountain bikes. And now you have these legion of young kids who are taking to two wheels. They're 
and it's inevitable that they will get gravel bikes and even road bikes. But what also happens is their parents, like, hey, if their kid's riding a bike, then I'm going to ride a bike. So they buy bikes. And so you have this new fervent population of people that are discovering how great bikes are, or their kids are bringing the parents back to something that they used to do. So I think there's a groundswell of of interest in two wheels. And um, again, like road racing is disappearing still. And I think the confluence of those things suggests that gravel will be with us to stay and there'll be varying um, participation between mountain biking and gravel and still some Grand Fondos. But what's happened with gravel is there's all these Me Too promoters that now there's a gravel race every weekend. And I think what needs to happen is a, ne- a lot of them need to go away and the really good ones need to stay and service that new audience, if you will. I can't argue that. I put on a gravel race, I don't even remember how many years ago, and I came up with it because there were zero 100-mile gravel races in the state of Iowa the year I decided to do it. The second year I did it, there were four 100-mile gravel races that month, and it exploded, and I was like, okay, supply and demand, like, we don't need that many. I'm going to shut mine down because it's a heck of a lot of work and uh, and it's really hard to put on an event. And so I'm going to let other people do that. And it filled the niche. So um, I 100% get what you're saying. I also feel like, though, there's a need for huge events like BWR, like Unbound, like Gravel Worlds. But there's also a need for a local 50-mile gravel race for somebody to try their first time to get somebody yeah. into the sport and, and less intimidating and $35 entry fee and you get a, a cookie at the end or whatever. Not a, not a huge yeah. production, but just an easy way to get into it and, and introduce people to the sport. So a little bit of both, but I, I hear you. There's in Iowa, there's at least one, if not two gravel races every single weekend in yeah. our little state. <clears throat> it's insane. Yeah. So, one of the things that we do at BWR and have done for, you know, a, almost a decade is we host recon rides. So mm-hmm. I run a, a Canyons team here called Courier, and we host the BWR recon ride. Sometimes we get 300 people to meet us at the brewery. We go out and do this organized ride and take in parts of the new BWR course and then come back and drink beer. We don't charge anything. We support it. And, but what we do is we end up nurturing people into the fold and getting them excited to do more. And that's just a service that we provide the community that's really fun. And I just had someone email me yesterday to say, hey, I just want you to know that I was so out of shape and hadn't ridden my bike in decades and I signed up to do the WANA and I suffered through it and I had to walk my bike up the last hill and it changed my life. And now that guy is kicking butt. He's riding all the time. 
He is getting faster and faster, does exceptionally well. Um, and he's his isn't a unique story. I've had so many people tell me that, hey, I got back to bike riding or I discovered bike riding because of your stupid event. And now I'm hooked. So thank you very much. That's awesome. That's Those are great stories. Probably gives you fuel to keep going too, doesn't it? Yeah. And I need those stories because there's so many detractors and things that um, in our general, generally polarized world, um, the more you, good you try and do, the more there are people trying to take you down. And that's something I remember my dad telling my sister that when she was, <clears throat> she was the homecoming queen at high school. And we're going to church. And my dad says to her, honey, well, my, my, my sister's complaining. Everyone's so mean to me. The other girls are so mean. And I'm, I'm nice. I'm nice, aren't I? And my sister's exceedingly nice. Uh, lives to provide service to people. Um, and my dad said, well, honey, in life, when you start to attain certain things, um, people will always want to shoot you down and bring you down to their level. And you just have to ignore that. And I remember, you know, she must have been 17 or 16 at the time. And I was uh, two years older listening to that and thought, hmm, that's some pretty good advice. And I hear that echoing in my head, just as like I hear my dad's comments and admonitions about, hey, let's just go slow and easy, son. Um, I, I think I so often go back to my parents' advice on how to approach things and to deal with the challenges in life. And I feel very grateful to have had those lessons imparted in me and that my parents are still here. And I can tell them, thank you so much for those words of wisdom. They've informed my life in dramatic ways. That's actually beautiful. And your dad's right. It's hard to be a race promoter. Like you yeah. hear everything like, I don't know. I can't even like, oh, the course or the anything. Oh, I, there wasn't water or there wasn't everything. Yeah. You just hear everything and uh, it all lands on your shoulders because you're the promoter it was your, yeah. uh, your idea. So it, it is super hard. Well, listen, uh, you've got some races coming up. Uh, what's left on the schedule this year? Yeah. Uh, Utah is the end of August and, um, We've got a new course there. So we finally, well, I, I shouldn't say we finally, because I'm still waiting on pins and needles to get the approval. But typically we would have to bypass the forest. So we would stay sort of in the high desert um, and circumnavigate this forest area that we always wanted to go into. So now it looks like we're able to add a seven or eight mile sector um, of really flowy, beautiful, incredible single track that we haven't used. And this very long forest service road, you know, through the trees with beautiful views, a canopy, just amazing. Um, so a big 20 plus mile sector of that to replace what used to be just kind of ugly asphalt. So we're very excited about the new course and look forward to being able to reveal it to the world. The way you describe your course is like, it's like big sugar, uh, in Iowa, there's a core four, which has got 
I don't know, 18 miles of single track, it's hard to figure out what bike to ride. Yeah. Uh, is that part of your part of your thing? Like pick the right bike oh. or is it all gravel oh, it, bike with the 47s? Well, you always, we always want people to cogitate on what, what they're going to ride. And it could change, you know, if it rained that week, that would change your tire choice. Um, if it didn't rain and it's really loose, that's going to inform your decision-making. We want people to always equivocate. Well, do I go with the skinnier tire and risk it? Or do I go with this wider tire and have an insurance policy that I'm not going to flat? Um, and that's the, the dance that people go through when they're doing our races. I love that. I think that's part of the fun of it. Um, just part of the strategy. Uh, so Utah's coming up, um, Kansas in September. Is that correct? Kansas is October 14th, October 14th. Why do I picture it in September? Um, (laughs) I actually have a funny story about Kansas and I should remember it was October, but, um, I won't get into that. And then Mexico. Tell me a little bit about Mexico. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, we Our proxy there is has done events all over the world. He was a former professional cyclist from Mexico who left Mexico at age 18 to go race in Belgium. So he raced as a pro in Belgium and then in Italy and then got into event promotions after his cycling career ended. So he's done events throughout... He's done them all over the world, and he's super awesome. His name is Siddhartha. And he actually lives in Querétaro, which is where the event is going to take place. That's a couple hours from Mexico City, so it's at some altitude. It is a beautiful, romantic town with cobblestones. It's where the Mexican... uh Declaration of Independence was signed. It's the largest expatriate population. It's $99 to get there from here in San Diego, and villas are $40 a night. So, and it's only $99 to do the race. So it's just a it's more of like this vacation, exotic lo- location, um, just after the holiday weekend here and Thanksgiving weekend. So it's the Sunday after. Thursday's Thanksgiving. And we can't wait to just be there and end the season with this magnificent event in Querétaro. That's very cool. Well, where does somebody go for information? Uh, bike. You can find out information on all of our events. Um, and there's links to registration for all of them from there. And if uh, Mexico doesn't work, 24 begins in Arizona. Is that right? Arizona, California. Yeah, March 2nd. So we're partnering um, or coordinating with Cactus Cup and uh, another event. So our event will be will follow another event there. So it's three weekends in a row culminating in the Cactus Cup. So last year we had some great mountain bikers, including Keegan Swenson, who won. But what an incredible race it was with these stellar cross racers, mountain bike racers, gravel racers. You had all of them 
uh, and they put on a display and the course is magnificent. It's totally different than any other one, like single track through cactus. So don't go off your line. Um, there's national parks and just incredible scenery and March is like the perfect transitional shoulder season where it's not hot yet, but like it literally snowed the week of the event, two days before the event, the course was blanketed in snow. And then, you know, race morning, there was no remnants of any of that. And it was a perfect morning. Some of the pictures I saw from, uh, must've been the week before were gorgeous. I'm like, ah, that's beautiful with the snow and the road winding through the snow. And that was gorgeous there. Absolutely. Uh, well, super fun. I'm glad you came up with this, uh, idea to help a sunglass company find its happy identity and uh, that it's become a thing. And, and I appreciate that you continue to turn the flywheel of some great events that are thriving in, the, in North America. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, David. That was fun. Thanks to Michael for joining us here today and for sharing about the Belgian Waffle Ride. You should give the BWR a follow on Instagram and then head on over to belgianwaffleride.bike for all the details on all six of this and next year's races. They're awesome events and I can't wait to do my first. Now I'd like to thank you for tuning in today as well. If you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you would rate and review on your favorite podcast platform and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook. When you do, it really helps the show grow. And if you really love the show and you want to see it continue, feel free to support it financially. Just look for Bike Talk with Dave at buymeacoffee.com. And when you do, I'll send you a sticker. I'd also like to thank both Chain and Spoke Coffee as well as bikeiowa.com for supporting the show. BikeIowa.com is the online host of Bike Talk with Dave. BikeIowa.com has one of the most extensive lists of cycling events anywhere. From mountain bikes to party rides, Bike Iowa has it all, including the Core 4, which is on August 19th. I'm planning on being there to tackle the gravel, the single track, and the pavement, and I would love to see you there as well. Check it out. Are you looking for your next epic cycling adventure? We've got one for you this summer that challenges all the surface types. When the folks at Core 4 say, no surface untouched, they mean it. Champagne gravel, pavement, speedy single track, and all the level B roads. Core 4 doesn't stop at four surface types. They've got an ethos to get all bodies on bikes, and it comes through initiatives which support socioeconomic justice, gender equality, and bike advocacy. It's all about community, opportunity, recreation, and engagement at Core 4. Go early, bring the fam, they've got everything. Bikes, bevs, packet pickup party at Big Grove, live music, free camping, and finish line fun for all. Do not miss the No Surface Untouched action in Iowa City, on Saturday, August 19th, 150 and 25 mile options. Follow along on Instagram at Core4Bike and get in the lineup. Core 
Core 4 sounds super fun and I am stoked about it. And I am also stoked to head over to Lincoln, Nebraska on August 25th, where D and I will be sailing our tandem through the gravel seas in the 75 mile version of the gravel worlds. You can find Core 4, gravel worlds, and so many more events, gravel biking, mountain biking, road biking, whatever you like at bikeiowa.com. Thanks tons again for tuning in. This episode will drop while I'm out on the 50th Ragbri, and I will bring my Mr. Microphone out on the roads with me to capture some of the characters, the music, and sounds of this annual pilgrimage. And if I'm good and disciplined, I will weave it all together into the 2023 Ragbri Spectacular episode. So tune in next week to find out if I got my homework done. So thanks again for tuning in. And remember, you can find every episode and stream it right on your computer or device from anywhere at biketalk.bike. Have a great week and say hi if we run into each other in some small town in Iowa waiting in the Kaibo line. 